So we're going to have a few minutes of each of us making a presentation on the topic, the general topic. Um, but the thought is that it's probably going to be more productive for us to respond to specific questions after we make a general overview presentation. So when we talk about rabbinic authority, my approach is that there can be no real Judaism without rabbinic authority because a rabbinic authority is built on Torah Shabbat, the oral Torah. And there's no Judaism and no Torah that makes any sense without an oral Torah. When you open up the Chumash and you read the Psukim, they are so ambiguous, there's no religion, we don't know what the Malachos are, we don't know what Shechita is, um, we don't know how the monetary laws play out correctly, um, and it's clear that Moshe Rabbeinu came down, um, and when there was a revealed Torah that he came down from Sinai with, he came down with oral interpretations. Right? The, the Rambam makes this point in many places, uh, that in many mitzvos, that it's not possible, even though in the Talmud it sounds like the Gemara is searching for an interpretation of pre-Eitz Hadar, what kind of a fruit is it, is it this, is it that, till they come up with the conclusion that it's an etrog, and when it says ayin tachat ayin, an eye for an eye, the Gemara seems to be discussing whether it means knocking out an eye or paying money. So the Rambam writes, of course, that's impossible, that until the Talmudic times, they didn't know what an etrog was, and that they were knocking people's eyes out um, until the Talmudic period. There are people who want to claim that. They want to claim that, that the Talmudic times refined the biblical morality. That in the time of, the, of the, uh, the biblical morality was to knock out eyes, and then in the Talmudic times it was modified. That's, that's, that's basically, in our perspective, that's heretical because it's denying that Moshe Rabbeinu came down with the Torah Shabbat, with an oral Torah. Um, the Rambam explains what, how to understand Pshat in those dialogues in the Gemara. But that, that there's, if there's no oral Torah... There's no Torah. You can't understand anything. Once you require an oral Torah, the system demands that there be rabbinic authority, that they have to have a, 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 a corpus of people who are immersed in the knowledge, who are transmitters of the tradition, and who are the authorities to, in, to, to tell you what it, what it says. Um, The famous story, there, everybody knows the story um, of Hillel and Shammai with the convert who wanted to be converted on one foot. That's well known. What's not so well known is another story in the Gemara, all right, where, the, where the convert said, I accept the written Torah, but I don't accept the oral Torah. So, of course, Shammai threw him out. Um, and Hillel said, okay, no problem. Come on in, I'll start teaching it to you. And he teaches him Aleph, Bez, Gimel, Dalit. Wonderful. Come back tomorrow after you learned that. Okay, and he comes back the next day and he repeats it to Shammai, to Hill, and he says, no, no, now. Then he says, Dalid, Gimel, Bez, Aleph. So the convert says, well, I don't understand, yesterday you told me the opposite. So Hillel says, wait, you relied on me yesterday, you've got to rely on me today. You know, if we're not going to rely on the transmission authoritatively of the rabbis of what the Torah means, then that we have nothing. Then it's a free-for-all. Uh, is that subject to abuse? Absolutely. That's exactly, and that's why we've had over the over the hist over the the, the Jewish history um, groups and people who abused it. We have the Sadducees uh, who claim that there's no oral Torah or there's misinterpretations of the oral Torah, um, and that's why one of the things that throughout history, when we talk about rabbinic authority. We don't just talk about scholarship. We don't just talk about brilliance. 
but we talk about integrity. And the Jewish people has a sniffer to be able to sense who are the people of integrity, midos, caring, sensitivity. That is a prerequisite for um, having them be the authority. Anybody who knew Ramosha Feinstein in our generation, we can only go by what we know in our generation. Ramosha Feinstein and Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Oyerbach and, and, and Rabbi Zalman Nechemi Goldberg, um, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rabbi Ruderman. These were people, anybody who knew them, these are the most sensitive people. The people of integrity. The people who ran away. Rabbi Leib Steinman used to live in a one-room apartment. Right, the, when when he the, when he became known a little bit outside world, so the journalists come to interview him and they wanted to see where he lives, and they couldn't believe that here's a person who in cash passes through his hands millions of dollars every year, millions of dollars in cash because people gave him the money to distribute for charity, and he lives in a one room apartment with a with a with a bed and a table. Okay, I mean, we unfortunately we know our leaders don't exactly conform to those uh, modest standards, but that's why people went to Rebbe Shteiman because they knew that whatever he's saying is pure integrity. He's imbued with Torah, he's filled with Torah, and he knows the Torah backwards and forwards. This is also one of the things we see in in in, in rabbinic authority is the people who know Torah backwards and forwards. Those are the people to whom the connoisseurs of halacha gravitate. Ramosha Feinstein writes in the introduction to Igros Moshe that the way he became the Posek Hador, one of the Poskei Hador, um, was because somebody asked him a question, a rabbi asked him a question, and he answered it. He wrote back a, a detailed answer, and it obviously resonated with the rabbi who was a Talmud Chacham himself, and people who are connoisseurs of the system. Those are the ones who get to decide who are the people of authority that we want to listen to. And that's really what rabbinic authority is all about. It's the to- rabbinic authority is built on the Torah Shabal Peh. I want to just read, there was a very, uh, very interesting article in the last um, issue of Jewish Action by uh, Moshe Bain. Um, and uh, the, the issue he, he was confronting was whether the, the fragmentation of different hashkafos in Judaism is a good thing or a bad thing. But one of the things he writes here, many breakaway groups within Jewry have unfortunately sought to innovate by rejecting the oral Torah or rabbinic authority. History has proven that these movements largely tend to vanish over time with the Jewish identity of their adherents eventually and tragically vanishing as well. And unfortunately, we see that in, in, our, in our world today, um, is that um, conservative shuls are being closed down and sold, and the only way that the reform are maintaining their numbers is by importing non-Jews into, in, into their system. Because the minute you abandon the authentic integrity to the Torah and the Torah system, there's no future to Judaism. Um, we see that, and he writes it there uh, um, in a couple, a couple of lines later, other subgroups emerged which introduced new approaches or attitudes into Jewish life. Of course, the most glaring one being Hasidus. And while remaining fully committed to halacha and traditional principles of faith. And that's, the, that's, where, that's where the rubber hits the road. So rabbinic authority is an absolute imperative because there can be no system without it, because that's what Torah Shabbal Peh is all about. But there has to be absolute fidelity to the system, to the system of believing that Torah came from Sinai, 
And the Maral talks about the Machlokas Hillel and Shammai being a Machloket L'Shem Shamayim because they weren't arguing about whether they agreed with God. Korach argued with God. Korach said God is not fair. Korach said God is not egalitarian. We're all Kulam Kedoshim. So he was not arguing. He's arguing against God. Hillel and Shammai were arguing about interpretation of what they both acknowledged is divinely revealed Torah. That's the starting point. Torah is divinely revealed. In order to understand it, we have to have a Torah Shabbat Peh, and the interpreters and the transmitters of that Torah Shabbat have to be the people who are completely immersed in it. That's rabbinic authority. That's in a nutshell how I understand why we have to have rabbinic authority and we have to know, the, we have to know who, are the, 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 who are the authorities that have credibility and there can be machlokas. But they all have to be saying we are arguing not about politics, not about sociology, not about our cultural values, but we're arguing about how to authentically interpret Torah, the divinely revealed Torah. One of the, the, the litmus tests that I've show, pointed out to people is that when you have a sugya that we ha- we're teaching you how to learn Gemara. We're teaching you how to learn Mesech Shabbos. So you don't really have an agenda Right about whether a malachashen tzrichle gufa is chayiv or potter, and therefore you're able to learn the Gemara according to the pshat in the Gemara. Okay, you know you don't you don't whether whether um, um, whether moda beknas potter or not. You don't have an agenda, and when you learn the sugya, there's a way to learn the sugya. There's a system on how to learn the sugya. So when you learn a Gemara that you have an agenda for, and it's clear that you're not learning the Gemara the way you would normally learn Gemara, but you have already decided where you want to end up, and then you massage the Gemara so that it comes out the way you want it to come out, that's illegitimate. That's exactly a contradiction to how rabbinic authority is supposed to be implemented. We have, to, we have a text, we have understanding, we have tradition, and we have to, to work within that system. History has shown that when we deviate from that system, the net result is complete disintegration. That's my opening thoughts. I'll let Rabbi Lerner now to share his opening thoughts with you. Okay. Shkaf, um, with a question from the Rav. Um, so when we're talking about rabbinic authority, and I was thinking of how to open up, what, what ideas do I want to present before we open it up to questions? Because unless, of course, I say something really outlandish and the Rav needs to jump on me immediately afterwards, which might very well happen. But the... The term authority and the term rabbinic, I want to dwell on those for a moment. When we say rabbinic authority, what do we mean by authority? Like people love saying, authority is eroded today. People don't like authority. And it's actually interesting, politically, if you're American, we're English, so we don't get this, but Americans have left and right sides of politics. The left side of politics say the right don't respect um, uh, scientific authority, be it in climate change, be it in COVID laws. But then again, the right say that the left don't respect traditional authorities. Conservatives like tradition. They like that aspect of authority. Everybody feels that there's a certain place where we have to give our allegiance to. We have to accept certain authorities when we have a value system. That's why I think it becomes relevant from a rabbinic standpoint. The Torah is a value system. That's, I think, in the most basic sense, that's what it is. In which case, that necessitates a hierarchy. If there is a value you're all trying to achieve, there are going to be some people who are going to be better at it, and some people are going to be worse at it. In which case, like a coach is an authority on the playing field, within Jewish thought, there are certain people who are going to be an authority to allow you, as an individual, 
to achieve your aims and your goals. Putting it in the context of Judaism is that Judaism is a goal. The Torah is a goal. The way of looking at the world through the Torah lens is a goal. And the way to achieve that is through accepting authority. And putting it in icky language, obedience. Willed obedience to an authority. If you're trying to, as I'm looking at it from the point of view of us as individuals, that's why we accept authorities. So that's why I think that the, the opening, that's where my mind went originally. Like, what do we mean by authority? But then there's another question that sort of comes up. Like, okay, that's great in terms of me working my way through Judaism. But when I say rabbinic authority, what sort of power do I invest them with? And this is also important. When we say Chachomim, or we say the Sanhedrin, or we say the Anshaykhanesa Sagadola came out with an enactment, do we think they're re- revealing legislation? It's a legal system. And they're telling us what the law is. Or they're describing an inherent part of reality to us. And there's a difference there. If there's a disagreement in law, and you say, well, this, like the Constitution in America, sometimes there's a debate, certain times things are overturned. We don't think the ontology of existence has changed because of it. Depends how American you are. But we don't think there's been a, a shift in reality. They've just revealed that certain things are the case or not the case. Is the Torah like that? And according to some commentators, yes. Other commentators, we see a... There's, no, there's an, a part of reality has shifted by the power of Chachamim because they've revealed to us not just Torah, <coughs> divine will. In which case, how you look at authority may change. But then another question came to mind. Well, which Rabbonim are we talking about here? Talking about Moses? Are we talking about this concept called Smicha, which existed before the destruction of the Second Temple? It's not the Smicha we have today. Are we talking about the Anshay Knesset Are we talking about the Sanhedrin? There are different levels of authority within Jewish thought. The Talmud. Says who? Why is the Talmud such a big thing? That came out 600 years ago. Uh, 600, 600 CE. That was, that, that, if you're sitting in the time of the second, the second base of Migdash, the, 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 the Talmud won't come around for another 600 years. But we look at the Talmud as being authoritative. Why? These are questions that sort of emerge out. But, but what about my personal rabbi? What about your personal rabbi? What about the chap who just published a book? Am I beholden to books that are published today? Now, these different levels of authority, I think, become interesting. Because where do I have to give my fealty? And it's not always so clear. And there are different opinions. And also the question of, like, where is it anchored? Authority has to be anchored somewhere. Where is it anchored? Is it anchored in the Torah? Well, that's a bit problematic, isn't it? Because there's a certain circular nature to that. Because we look at the Torah not as a... It describes laws. And in Devarim, there's a... In, in, um, in Shoftim, it discusses the idea of... Uh, that if the, if the leaders of the generation, you have a problem with a certain decision, you have to go to the leaders and you shouldn't deviate from what they say, nor left, nor right. And there's a whole bunch of literature written about that about that being an anchor for the authority of the rabbis. But that already is a rabbinic interpretation on the Bible. So these are the ideas. I'm not answering any questions here. I'm putting the Rashi Parakim on the table. These are the things that are going to be teased out and discussed when we talk about rabbinic authority. But in two minutes or three minutes, I want to present a perspective that I sort of go in with. And I think it's useful for a number of reasons. One, that there's a certain circularity to the idea of looking at the Torah as a book and the oral tradition as a interpretation on it. I think there's a lot is lost if you look at Judaism through that lens. And Rav Shamsha Rafal Hirsch did a, best way of putting it, a Copernican revolution 
on the Torah. Not that I think he actually did, and he didn't phrase it like this, but I think for a lot of people, he shifted the way we look at the Torah. The reason why I say Copernicus is because previous to Copernicus, we used to look at the Earth as being in the center of the universe, and like everything else going around it, and then, sorry, sorry, the um, and then we looked at the sun as being the center, from a geocentric model to a heocentric model, and it basically shifted our perspective. Rav Hirsch says, we cannot look at the written law, the chumash, as being the focal point. You know we're called people of the book? You've heard that phrase? The Jews are the people of the book? Do you know where that comes from? A bit of trivia for you. It's not a Jewish phrase. Yeah? It's a Excellent. The Muslims called people of the book Zoroastrians, Christians, and Jews. And there, there is a reason why we like that phrase, because we're not the people of the temple. We're not the people of Jesus. No, we're the people of a book. But there's a problem with that. Some of the reasons why the Rav mentioned that the book in and of itself isn't sustainable in its own sense. But Rav Hirsch says that he changes the metaphor of how we look at the Torah. He says, don't look at the Torah as being the focal point and the source of all Jewish knowledge in and of itself. The oral tradition that came along with the Jewish people is like a lecture. And the written law is like the notes on a lecture. When you talk about Jewish law and you see, for example, Pasha Mishpatim opens up, the body of Jewish civic law opens up with the one time you take a person's freedom away. That's a bizarre way to open up. How in the world is that the justice and moral revolution of the Jewish people when you sell someone into servitude and that's how you open up your civic code? Rafesh says the, only re- the reason why that only makes sense is if there is a body of law that comes along with it. Witnesses, testimony, evidence, whatever you want to say, even the, that has to come into place first. What is the value of opening up with one one person steals from another and gets sold to someone from the community? He sees a moral value in that. The same way the next commandment is when a person sells their daughter. Like people don't know this before they read it. And like, they're like, what? It's a bizarre way of opening up. Forget about it. It's striking as being profoundly immoral. The person should sell their daughter. Like, this is how the Torah opens up its law. From a first standpoint, that makes perfect sense. It's dealing with exceptions. It's dealing with very unique cases where you can derive more fundamental principles. But it's only if you look at the Torah as being notes. If you look at my notes, you will not be able to decipher the lectures I listen to. I would, because they're my notes. But if you would have attended the lecture, then the notes make sense. Rav Hirsch looks at that as being the dynamic between the oral and the written law. There's a beauty to that, because when we say Torah, we don't, as some other Jewish thinkers in the 20th century put it, like um, even Mendelssohn, the idea that we're not going to... He called it protected... he, He felt that the oral tradition and the Jewish law protected us from idolatry. Because otherwise you almost idolatrize the Torah as being the focal point. But for a Jew, when we say Torah, we mean that body of ideas. We mean that body of ideas that we call Torah. In which case, when you start looking at it through that lens, it's one of the reasons why we don't memorize, they, they compare it to like Islam. We don't memorize passages from the Torah. It's not what we do. We don't memorize passages from the Torah like they do the Quran or the, or the Christians do in the Bible. Because it isn't the absolute focal point. It's this body of law which we call the oral tradition. Now, if you look at it through that lens, A, you lose that circularity of like, if the written law is the absolute source and the oral tradition is what comes from it or it analyzes it in a certain way, the analysis is what gains its right. No, the analysis can't gain authority. 
the body of Jewish law as it's presented to us comes with a system. The system is part of a hierarchy. That hierarchy has a certain authority that comes with it. It comes to us that we accept because we want to be able to work within the system because there are ideas and goals within the system that we want to pursue. I'm putting it in a very pragmatic sense. A person can put the lens on, well, of this being truth and I want to pursue truth. And the best way for me as an individual right here, right now to pursue truth is to go along the line of the tradition back to where it started. So to summarize these ideas, I want to lay out the different types of authority that can lay themselves in front of us. How do you anchor such an authority? What do you think that authority does? Is it omtake in terms of that it describes reality? When Chachomim tell us something <coughs> is capital T truth? Or they're telling us how we're supposed to navigate law in this specific circumstances. And it may just be that we follow it because otherwise we'll have two tires. Otherwise we'll have two tires. And that's why we have to accept this authority. There are Jewish thinkers that describe the possibility of the Chachomim being wrong. Is that possible? For sure it's possible. They say, why do we listen? Because otherwise you lose Judaism and we'll have two tyrants. It's a pragmatic approach. These approaches exist. And this is the the, the sea that you navigate. And the the last idea was Rav Hirsch's approach to the oral tradition and the written law and shifting the perspective, not being the written law being the focal point, but it being the notes, which, by the way, becomes super useful if you're having a conversation with someone who points to something within the tyra and says, you believe that? It's like saying Richard Dawkins used to do. He used to literally just tell people what was written in the Torah. And that was enough to freak them out. (laughs) But from an orthodox standpoint, I would say that's not legitimate. I'm putting it in the most, let's call it extreme sense. I never accepted the Torah as a book that I gave all my fealty to. No, it was the body of Jewish law. It was the body of what we call Torah. That's what I gave my fealty to. Not the specific book that we call the Torah. It was all of it together. So those are my thoughts in terms of if I had to open up a conversation about rabbinic authority. Okay, I think we can throw it open to questions. I don't have anything specific. I mean, I have a lot to respond to, but i probably come out in the course of the conversation of the questions if there are. Yes. Sorry, I just got excited. So. <laughs> so, Speak up. Learner, Speak um, up. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, so Rabbi Lerner, you mentioned... Um, considering books are being published right now, and you said that's a form of authority, do I owe my fealty to that? Can you talk more, and actually want to hear both of the Rob's opinions, about what it means, when has a new halakhic work become something that's uh, normative? Or, and um, yeah, and if it isn't normative, can you pick what to, to follow something that came out today? Um, how does that work? Okay, so I think we have to make a distinction. I think what you're alluding to. We don't paskin halacha from modern books. These modern books are summaries. They're, they're facilitators. It's because people don't have as much um, uh, fidelity or knowledge of the systems. Uh, there was a very famous article. I think it's already 30 years old because I know a few years ago they did a 25-year-old, 25-year follow-up um, from a Tradition uh, magazine uh, by Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, the son of Reb Yashaber Soloveitchik, who was called... Um, Rupture and Reconstruction, I believe, was the name of the article, where he said that post-World War II, Judaism transitioned from being a monemic religion to a textual religion. In other words, um, 100 years ago, no woman ever learned Hilchas Kashras. She just knew Hilchas Kashras by being in the kitchen with her mother. 
Okay, and, and, and people knew halacha because they lived halacha and it was transmitted generation after generation. There was a rupture at, at, at the Holocaust. And the rebuilding of Orthodox Judaism happened through texts. And all of a sudden, they, people started looking more at the text because they didn't have any other mnemic um, source for the religion. But what you're t- when, we, when Rabbi uh, Lerner mentioned books, halachic books, that's not authority. Authority are people. Okay, I mean, yes, Rav Shlomo Zalman wrote Svarim, and the Chazanish wrote Svarim, and Rav Moshe Feinstein has Igros Moshe. Okay, those help rabbis who have to make decisions. But, that's, but that, those are vehicles for the experts to access Rav Moshe Feinstein's Torah knowledge when he's not around anymore. Okay, but what you mean by, when we talk about books, we're talking about probably the codification of what was always the oral law, i.e. the Shulchan Aruch, and then the Ramah, but even that afterwards, there were uh, later achronim. So we, all, we, we need Torah scholars to make sure that the Judaism and the Torah stays alive. Okay? And, and just using books is dead. All right? So the, 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 we, we study the books, and we study the Svarim, we study our traditions, we study the Talmud. But we study the Talmud as a Torah Shabbat Peh. Even that, it's an oral Torah. That's why you need a Rebbe. Right, the Maral opens in the Mem Chet in the forty-eight ways to the forty-eight ways by which Torah is acquired. The first one is Talmud, and of course, the Maral understands that that can't mean literally. You have to study. Of course, you have to study. You have to study chemistry also. What's unique about about Torah in contradistinction to chemistry or history? And the Maral says in in in, in a half a sentence he's, that chemistry you can figure out by yourself. You don't need a Rebbe. It facilitates it if you have a Rebbe. But in theory, you could do exactly what your professor did. Because the professor, or Einstein, he figured it out himself. So you're just not as smart as Einstein. But in theory, you could figure it out yourself. Torah requires a Rebbe. Talmud means you can't figure it out yourself. Because it's, you've got to be connected back to the Sinaitic experience. Okay, so again, you've got to be careful that when we talk about books, and we look at books... Um, it's very dangerous to, 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 to get your halacha from books and not have a connection with a live rabbi. And so the, the reason why I mentioned it was uh, it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek towards, for example, when people uh, in Judaism, there are certain miraculous events that are part of Jewish thoughts. Like splitting of the sea, exodus from Egypt, they're pretty important, right? But what about the miracle story my friend's rebbe told him, or, or the miracle story you told me about your rebbe or your teacher? Am I required to believe that as well? No, no, of course not. It's like that's great for you. In a, that's why it came to mind. When that random book that now came out, am I? Do I hold fealty to that? No, of course not. That doesn't mean it's a bad book, but just it's calling on me is not going to be the same. But just to follow on what the Rav said, the idea of um, where that the the idea of um, who wrote the book and Moshe Feinstein, etc., etc., on the ground today, the anchoring of authority lies in people, in terms of that we give authority to Rabbonin. I think the phrase you used earlier, people vote with their feet, meaning someone who I recognize as if I, I, I found myself a Rebbe. When I found a Rebbe, I, he was someone who I, I, in my level, I was able to recognize being very wise, very knowledgeable, and a good person, in which case I went to him. Now, he has his, and he has his. It's sort of a meritocracy in that sense. Um, yeah, that, that, uh, uh, let me add, a, you, you mentioned voting with your feet. Again, the, the Ramosha Feinstein, the implication of Ramosha Feinstein's introduction is that the connoisseurs of halacha came to him, they listened to what he said, and it resonated. 
And therefore they kept going back to him. Okay, I'm reminded of um, who are the go-to people today in, in halachic questions and hashkafic questions, halachic, hashkafic questions for Bali Tshuva. Because Bali Tshuva are not the same as FFBs. And the issues are different and their backgrounds are different and, you, and, and the psak halacha is going to be different because of the circumstances. Halacha is a function of circumstances. So I remember that over the years and when there were conference conventions of Kiruv rabbis and they always brought in big rabbis to answer questions, to discuss, etc. There were usually only two or there were, they brought in every year a different rabbi. There were two or three rabbis that became the go-to people. There are, today there are two, or there, there are, today there are two, five years ago, five, ten years ago, there were maybe four or five, but they were the go-to people. Why? Well, we were the connoisseurs, we were the consumers of halacha for Bali tshuva. And we understood that when we went and discussed these questions with big, big Torah authorities, but we sensed that one of the Torah authorities gets it, and one doesn't get it. They're, they're, they were equally great in halacha. They were equally great in their book knowledge. But part of the authority was that we sensed as consumers, as connoisseur consumers, okay? And I say that with all humility because we had years of experience, but we didn't have the great knowledge and the, 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 the instinctual halachic knowledge to, to, to pass in very difficult questions. So we used to go to other people. And sitting with other people, you realize he gets it. He didn't get it. Okay? That's not called sock shopping, by the way. Okay? And, and that was, that we voted with our feet. And, and over the years, everybody, all the Kirov rabbis who were serious and knowledgeable somehow or other gravitated towards these two or three rabbis, and they became the authority. So, they were elected, but they weren't elected by popular vote, they were elected by people voting with their feet. That's rabbinic authority. That's why Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and Rabbi Shlomo Zalman became the authorities. And I'm not going to mention names, but there were other people in my generation who were intellectually as great as they were, and they were not accepted because they were publicity hounds, they were sharp in their midos, and they just people, they, you know, they wrote shubas, but it wasn't universally accepted. It, it didn't get the, the traction. That, that, that these other rabbis got because of that. And it, it's, it evolves. It, it's, a, it's, an evol- it's, a, it's an evolution that we, that we just, we see over the, over the decades, where do people gravitate towards? Yeah, go ahead. Um, but you got to speak up loud. Sure. Um, so it's a, I'm stuck between two questions. Um, you can ask them both because it doesn't look like there's a lot of people who want to ask questions out there. So right, you can ask them both. So the, with this meta, it's a good question. So just repeat the question. You're saying, isn't there a danger of giving just if I just if I if I just have the lecture, why have the notes? There's a possibility that people will misinterpret the notes. Yes, granted. Any time you interact with people, any time you use language, and any time you write something down, there's always a danger, which is one of the reasons why th- there's machloikas as well. That's part of the system. We people disagree. What's the the, the philosophical 
understanding to disagreements is a different question. But yes, there's a danger. And of course there's a danger. But the advantage about having it this way is, first of all, from a very basic standpoint, it's called a memory aid. It reminds people of what was given over in an oral sense. But more importantly, it allows... Now, this is me arguing for why I like this approach, is that it allows the Torah to be a participatory act. You can't, you can't just have a book. It keeps it alive. It keeps it dynamic. It keeps us involved in it. We call it a Torah Chaim. We compare it to water. That's one of the reasons. It's not just we repeatedly read a book. It's constantly... Torah is, is adapting to new situations and new environments. The knowledge of the type of Torah we're learning in a base medrash is dynamic. It grows. It changes. People argue. People debate. That is the nature of an oral tradition. And the, if you just have a book, well, then it's, it's static. It can't change. So that's one disadvantage about just having it. But just having an uh, oral tradition, well then, simply speaking, you, you lose the possibility of recovering. There are aspects, there are ways that Chazal were able to recover from the idea of the 13 midas of, um, of hermeneutics, of deciphering law from the Torah. There were ways of deciphering that which was previously there. Now, it is worth mentioning, it's a debate amongst the commentaries. Is it the way I'm describing it, like Rav Hirsch likes to propose it, like the Malbim tries to propose it, that what Chazal did in the Talmud and the Mishnah, they didn't invent, they didn't create, they deciphered previously existing laws within the system, that, they, that were already there, and they, they, they sort of like um, lifted them out. There are other interpreters that say that not so much. There were principles and uh, laws, or sorry, principles and uh, rules that they used to create. So it was more not so much rele- revealing, more of a creative process. And there's a beauty to that as well. I think people, I think the, um, like for example, the Rambam would take that approach. So I, 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 I like each one for different reasons. I like the creative nature of one, but I also love the, I like the. Um, the participatory nature of the other, that it's not something that required creation, it was always in existence, and we're still interacting with it today. Um, yeah, does that, does that, does that make, I mean, it was a bit of a, a long-winded answer. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, can I ask a follow-up? Yeah, sure. So you're absolutely right. That's why when they when the when Chazal described when we when we described in the in the psukim that don't turn from left or to right to what um, the courts tell you, there's a question that always emerges: like what happens if they're wrong? Do you still listen to them? There's a famous story in the Talmud where I think it's Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua where they're dis- discussing a certain astronomical finding, and Rabbi Yeshua says to Rabbi Gamliel, "You're wrong," but like not no, what you're saying isn't actually possible. Thereby, if the date of the astronomical event took place, Rosh Chodesh will be on a certain day. If you disagree when Rosh Chodesh is going to be, your Yom Kippur is going to rock up on a different day. Rabbi Gamil demanded that he comes before him on the day that Rabbi Yeshua thought was Yom Kippur with his stick and his money belt, I believe, and his money belt. Why? To show that you had fealty to the system. I think it's Rabbi Akiva goes and like... Uh, what was it, Rabbi Akiva says to him to sort of the Darshans from a that we are the ones who make the astronomical dates by our 
deciding. Not by the moon, we decide it. There's a, a beauty to that, that we are the ones who decide the moedim, which, by the way, from a grammatical sense really works, because the word moed actually means to meet. If we were just demanded to uh, attend because of the constellations of the stars, then that wouldn't really be a meeting, it would be a demanding. But we meet. Now the question is, when Chazal decides something, are we using that as creating the reality, like Rabbi Akiva said, only when it came to Rosh Chodesh? Or when Chazal decides something, it makes it the case in all other areas of Jewish law. So those, those, those ideas are discussed. Because if you think what the Chachomim say, make it so, then you haven't got a problem. There's no mistake. There can't be a mistake. They make reality. But if you say no, there will be a mistake. And if they make a mistake, what do we do? Now, it's, it gets complicated if you know there's a mistake or you think there's a mistake, but according to some commentaries, that even if there is a mistake, it makes more sense for you to do what they say. Because in the greater sense, A, you don't have the problem of sectarianism, about spitting off, and, uh, and the historians point out that Rabbi Gamliel was the time of the rise of Christianity. So that's a, a pretty big sectarian group. Um, the idea that you, you don't have two tires, but also in terms of that they're probably going to be right. In which case it makes sense. So one's more pragmatic and one's more principle. So if you take the position of pragmatism, then it's, 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 of course it's a cost, but um, I think I lost myself in that. But um, if, if, you look, if you look at it as a point of view of pragmatism, then it does, yeah, it, there is a cost on a, some sort of like metaphysical sense. Yes, there's a cost. That sometimes they'll be wrong, but it still makes sense for us to go before it. Is it worth it? I don't know if I can make such a judgment call. Well, I'm going to just take issue with a couple of things there. The only time it talks about when they definitely make a mistake, they are empowered, is Kiddush HaChodesh. There's a, the, you mentioned that they had, Rabbi Kiva Rosh, it says Atem. There's an extra yes. word, and from the Atem it says, even if they're doing it wrong, in quotation marks, their declaration of the new moon determines when the holidays are. So it's a special limud. Atem atfilushogim, atem mutim, atfilomizidim. Right, it's by Kiddush HaChodesh specifically. It's a big discussion whether when the Sanhedrin makes a mistake, do you follow or not, okay? But in general, what we would say, I would take a little bit of a different approach. You as a consumer, are, it's way beyond your pay grade to make a decision whether they're making a mistake or not, okay? Uh, but there is an idea, there is an idea it's a, that, that if, um, if a group of rabbis will go right now and they would say, okay, time to put on tefillin and daven shachars. Did you look outside? What, what, what time of the day is it now? Okay, so you, if, if that's what you see, then the fact that some rabbis tell you it's shachris and go put on tefillin and daven shachris, you don't listen to them. That's a very slippery slope. Okay, it's got to be as clear as it's night, and they're saying it's day, okay? Um, I, again, I mean, there are sources for that, 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 that right? It, uh, but, but, but it's got to be that clear, and usually it's not. Usually it's you think they're making a mistake. But maybe it's beyond, in the other direction, it's beyond your pay grade to have an opinion, right? A big medical expert tells you something, a huge medical expert, you have a certain, uh, you, your tests come back in a certain way. And he says, look, this is my diagnosis. And you say, I disagree. <laughs> You know, I mean, if, uh, I, you know, certainly if it was a life that, you know, uh, 
you know, I think that you would understand that, like, it's just beyond your pay grade. And when you would tell him, well, please explain to me why you reached your opinion, because I looked on Google and I think it's different. So he would be allowed to say to you, um, if you're going to spend the next six years in medical school, four years training, and ten years doing all the operations that I have done, then we can talk. So that you've got to realize, these are rather, when the rabbis are explain, expressing these opinions, you are talking about people who are immersed. They're experts. Okay? And it's, it's you know, it, it's, it, it's a little bit out of your pay grade to think that you can now say they're making a mistake or not. That's how I would understand. Yeah? Yeah, I have a question. So when you talk about it being above our pay grade, but then you also talk about the concept of uh, we voted these big rabbis and these influential rabbis, or other rabbis are the ones voting for the, the The connoisseur consumers. Not your time, not your, not your masses, not, we don't, we, you know, Judaism doesn't believe everyone is entitled to their opinion, but you also don't, right? If you're on the operating table, okay, and there's two, 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 two neurosurgeons and a nurse and a, and a, and a, and a, and a anesthesiologist and a guy to sweep up the blood, right, and a, and a resident, you don't think we should take a vote on what to do with your brain surgery. Again, I, I repeat, it's the connoisseur consumers. In other words, it, was, it wasn't some um, you know, ignorant person who wrote Ramosha Feinstein a question, and when he heard Ramosha Feinstein's answer, he said, wow, this, he really knows what he's talking about. I'm going to send him my next question. We were talking here about people who are immersed in the system. They themselves are experts, but they realize there are things that need a higher level authority, a higher level insight, higher level knowledge. Those are the people that decide who are the ones who, as we like to say, get a seat at the table. In other words, the, 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 you, you, it's the experts that decide who are the real authorities. I mean, you have that in every area, Rabbi Lerner alluded to in the beginning. Every system has, has to have authorities. The question is, which authorities do you listen to? Do you listen to the scientists, to the intellectuals, to the politicians, to the journalists, you know, to the movie stars? We're in a culture where you know who the experts are? The authority is the movie stars. If the movie stars say something, we must, they, they're the authorities. So we have to decide who are our authorities. In Judaism, the authorities are the people who have been acknowledged by people who are knowledgeable connoisseurs. Can, can I just jump in on that? There's a bit, so, uh, not, to di- not to disagree, but to add a bit of autonomy to this conversation, meaning when it comes, the, uh, the word autonomy means um, self-rule. You, you also... Where do you take a stance on this? And I think you, we've got the classic phrase of rav. pick for yourself a rav. And I've forgotten who said it like this, that it's not only you pick a rav, by you picking, you make them a rav. There's that part of it as well. Meaning, how do I vote with my feet? Simply speaking, as an individual, I'm a, I'm a schnook in the big system. I'm nobody. But I still have to pick a rav because I still have to live. In which case, I find someone who I feel from my level of connoisseurship is worthy of my fealty. That means I'm not going to pick the same person you're going to pick. We're going to pick someone... doesn't mean I pick someone... As an individual doing their best, to be honest, they pick someone who will on some level push them, but also some level seize them. No one goes to uh, another culture to choose a Rebbe. No one, no, no, none of us are... Uh, maybe. I'm not going to Bnei Barak to choose a Rebbe because they have a different world for me. We live in different worlds. We live in different perspectives. I will choose my Rebbe. I will choose my guidance in this hierarchy that's where I put my 
autonomy in. I've picked him. Why did I pick him? Because he saw me. I understand he knows where I'm coming from. And from my little understanding, he's an honest person who has a decent body of knowledge. But there will be a time when I'll ask him a question and it'll be above his pay grade. And his honesty, he will be able to say, listen, this is too big for me. I'm going it to one of my big boys. In which case, what will he do? The person I trusted is going to use that trust that I've given him and go to who he trusts. Whoever, that's how the system is built from my understanding. But that's also how the system's built from my input. I went and chose him. He, if I've made a good decision and something's beyond him, maybe you chose someone who there's nothing beyond them, but that's unlikely. Everyone has to have someone above them. If someone says to you, there's no one above me, it's a good indicator that you shouldn't be picking them. Everyone has someone above them. The question is, who is that person above them? Are they able to put someone above them when things are too big for them? Or when they, as you know, they say every therapist should have a therapist. When the rabbi is going a bit off, who can, who can rein him back? That idea is, that that's where you as an individual take a stance. Does that make sense? I'm not gonna. I have. I'll leave it. What you said. I'll, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so when you're talking about like adding on to what like Kalinsky said about we're not the ones picking who the poskim and gedolima of the door, right? We're the ones, but we have sort of our own autonomy. When when you're saying we have our own autonomy and we pick our own rav, we're picking our own rav from the rabbis that were chosen, right? Because I can't go to Rabbi Betty at T- Temple Bethel and go get posted, like, from Halakha from her. I'm, I'm saying, like, we're picking from a bunch of people who are already chosen, right? Uh, we're you? picking from rabbis who have already been chosen because I can't just go pick anyone and say they're a rabbi. Uh, let me, let me, let me, you, you, okay, we're, you, uh, uh, let me help, help clarify because it really is good, what's something I was thinking about in answer to your question also. There, there's, 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 there's from the bottom up and there's from the top down. In, in other words, you're operating from the bottom up. You have to choose a rabbi. But how do you choose the rabbi? One of the ways you have to do is by seeing, and this is what Rabbi Lerner was alluding to, who do those rabbis go to when they have a problem? Okay, when they have a question, or did, where, from where do they get their authority to even be in that position? In other words, you're, you're doing a, a bottom-up. You're choosing a rab. You're not choosing one of the gdole hador. You're not choosing one of the super authorities. You're not choosing a Ramosha Feinstein. Okay? The rabbis chose a Ramosha Feinstein. But your job is to choose a rabbi who thinks that Moshe Feinstein is an authority, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman is an authority, the Lubavitcher Rebbe is an authority, okay, the, right? Rabbi Yosheber Salavajik is an authority. You want to choose a rabbi who is buying in to the rabbis who have a consensus that what I call, these are the players who deserve a seat at the table. Okay? And that, that's where it's, there's a bottom up and a top down. That's how I understand the system. Can I, can I add something to that? Yeah. Without... This is the t- perfect time where someone will like snippet what I said. Like, you can choose Rebbits and Betty. <laughs> what do I mean by that? If you make a decision as an autonomous individual that you want to be part of a reform community, then you make such a decision. You own the decision. You, a-, a person, makes the decision. You own the decision, and then go knock on Rebbits and Betty's door. Meaning, oh, yeah. th- the decision to be part of uh, being t- what we're talking about is in the context of I've come to Judaism. For whatever reason, which can be a discussion, I found orthodoxy, with all its shades of green, to be the best bet that I have as a human being. As far as I checked, last time I only have one chance at this. I'm not coming back. 
I'm not that into Google. So I ain't coming back simply speaking. I mean, maybe I am, I don't know. But I'm saying, simply speaking, I, I've, this is my one shot at things. In which case, I've got to do my best. I'm putting my money here. I'm speaking super pragmatically. And there's, uh, there's an emotional depth to me as well. But we're being super pragmatic here. I've chosen orthodoxy. Within the body of orthodoxy, you're right. You're only going to be, I'm only going to be introduced to the, let's be, once again, super pragmatic, I don't know, 50 or 60 rabbis that exist in Ramat Bechemesh. I had to pick a community. And the community I picked, I, I, I put my money there. Why did I pick that? For the reasons I discussed before. I felt he saw me, I felt he was balanced, reasonable, intelligent, blah, blah, blah. For sure. But if a person's, their, 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 their purview is, is wider, like, I'm not sure where I'm going to look right now. There's many different offshoots that I might be in. That's a different conversation. That's I say, okay, why is reform not part of this table that the Rav's discussing? That's the question. Like, why isn't, why isn't Rebus and Betty's Rav part of the table? And you say, well, because she chose to, to, to take certain stances. That means that at this table, at least, she's not welcome. And there's boundaries there. And boundaries aren't fun. They're not nice. They're not, like, cutesy. They're, they're, they're harsh. The boundaries are harsh. They're like, no, if you take these stances, you're not welcome at the table, however intelligent you may be. So it's a... Uh, with the greatest respect to Robert and Betty in that whole situation. I, my, my, my point isn't to be disrespectful. My point is to be that, that it's a decision about where am I putting my money. And there are boundaries that have to be put up because if you don't have boundaries, you know there's the, the, the um, it's a very dark start when, you, when someone touched the Orana Kodesh, right? And they died. And then the, uh, it, people like look at that as being like, oh my gosh, like, like, just to die for touching? And it gives over a very symbol- I mean, powerful symbolic idea that there are boundaries Certain things are sacred, and if you break down those boundaries, you can stretch. And there's a canopy, and different personalities have different pers- Like Certain people like to stretch the umbrella. Certain people like to hold fast to this rule. But there's a certain point that if you stretch too far, it breaks, and then you lose everything. So I'm saying that it's based off a decision about where to enter the conversation, to whether it's at his table or the... It's called the expansive table. <laughs> but I'm saying that whether that table, that, so that such table cannot exist. Like, for example, in certain respects, that table does exist. Where does that expansive table exist? There's a debate amongst different uh, rabbinical thinkers. When it comes to social and uh, cultural issues in your country, do you expand the Jewish table? For example, the chief rabbi in England, part of his job was to uh, interact with Mazorti, um, reform, conservative, and that was part of his job because there were certain issues. He was the rabbi, the chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth. His political job, like his government it, it, it was part of his responsibilities. So as a Jew, he was acknowledging... Now, but if you would say to him, like, okay, now putting on your halachic hat now, it, would you consider them a legitimate authority to paskin on your bezdin? He'd be like, with the greatest respect and love, no. Go ahead. So speak up. Something I've been wanting to hear more about in Yeshiva. So, um, just in, in both your like opinions and perspectives, like what are the components? Of, can you draw me? Okay. What are the components of like divinity and like human creative agency, which goes into the oral tradition, and like how do they interact? It's a good question. I, I guess the only way I, I first I'll give my facetious one word answer yes I, 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 when you talk about human interaction and this, I alluded to this before not every human being 
has the ability to tap in to the systems of divine revelation. It's hard work, okay? And it requires midos, it requires lots of study, tremendous knowledge, okay? But ultimately then, we believe that's part of what Torah Shabbat is, is that the human being has the capacity to access divine wisdom and be a player it's a play, be a player in revealing God's Torah at the end of the day when we're studying Torah we're revealing Torah and man has to reveal the Torah but it has to be done with integrity it has to be done with honesty it has to be done with consistency and this is when I alluded before Korach I'm not sure if this is going to be Rabbi Betsy or not but the idea Korach's a prob- the problem with Korach was he felt God's system as revealed wasn't fair it wasn't fair. Kulam Kadoshin, it's not fair. So that makes him not a player anymore. Hillel and Shammai were saying, we accept the divinely revealed system. We have to use our intelligence, our intellect, our sensitivity, our instinct to try to ferret out the intention of the divine creator based on consistent, on, based on, on, on consistent systems of how the system works. So that, that's basically what it is. So there's definitely an interaction. In other words, it's man's job to try to access, quote, the mind of God. But it's not something that you can do while you have your feet up on the chair, swigging a Coke, eating, eating a pizza, right, you know, and, and, and watching your cell phone, and we're going to also access the mind of God. It's very, very hard work. It requires lots of devotion. It requires lots of character refinement. But that's the job. Yes, the job of the Torah scholar is to be a player in revealing the divine will. That's how I understand it. Um, so, yeah, so I just to, to, the, the, the difference between um, divine inspiration and uh, revelation, and as it's sometimes called, like a continuous revelation, meaning our rabbi is continuously <clears throat> revealing Torah. So within this framework, not quite like that. Meaning there is this idea of a moment of revelation. There is an idea that at a point there was a revelatory experience. Revelation is a metaphor. Something was, something was given that wasn't there before. But that, that which is given, it's a tricky way to talk about it because the, the language kind of breaks down. We start using a lot of metaphors. But the best, the best way that I understand it is that when a rabbi speaks today, they're not speaking with the voice of revelation. That's not how I look at it. A rabbi isn't re- uh, creating or... Uh, um, uh, um, continuing the revelation quite like the idea that we go back in history to. But we today, through our interactions with the Torah, in, with our creative sense, we are revealing you. And in that respect, there is a revelatory experience. You, you, you have never existed before. In which case, your mind has never been applied to the body of what we call Torah. In which case, what will be revealed through your interaction if you go, you apply it. If you, what makes it genuine is if you, I mean, simply speaking, is if you go in there with, I'm just going to sound super Christian, but if you go in there with a pure heart, you go in there with the right intentions, you go there with, this is where the moral will sort of interacts. You, you have to be a good person. You can't approach Tyra as a means, as a, as a shovel to dig with, to get money and think that you're going to be revealing Tyra like that. Meaning, what we say a person interacts with the body of Torah, he has to be doing it with good intentions. He has to be doing it as a works-on person. And thereby, what he perceives within the Torah wouldn't have been seen before necessarily. That's what we call a chiddush. 
That is, that, is, that is the creative endeavor being applied to Tyra and revealing that which is new because your perspective has never been seen before on this planet before. Your experience, your background. And if you genuinely approach your learning with that perspective, of course you're being creative. Creating. Creating. Yeah. So that, that, that moving back to the stage of the, 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 the Sanhedrin or the Talmud, I think it's a debate what exactly was happening there. From our point of view today... In those days or today? In those days, I think that they were, they were, they were empowered and they were qualified um, to uncover new things, to, re- to reveal, to create new perspectives that had not existed until that time. But again, because these were people at the, at the pinnacle high level of integrity, spirituality, knowledge, etc. In other words, we have this concept of Yiridata Dorot. There's a, de- there's a deterioration in the, in the ability of the generations. And pretty much there was a, it was a Klal Yisrael. It was a, un- it was a universally accepted opinion that when the Talmud was finished, Ravina and Ravashi when they concluded and, 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 and codified the Talmud, that was pretty much the end of that process. That process ended, and from then on, the job was to understand, our job is to understand what was revealed er, in earlier generations. Can I add one quick point? The goal, this isn't ideal though. The idea of a Sanhedrin existing is the goal, where they will be able to do that again. There are problems within Judaism, there are problems within Jewish law that can only be fixed with the concept of a Sanhedrin which we don't have. And how to reenact that and recreate that has been tried over history by differing people to differing degrees of success. But that concept of a Sanhedrin with that sort of, led, and this is a very technical term, of legislate, too late at night for me to talk, the, the ability to legislate in that sort of way is in the power of the body called the Sanhedrin. That doesn't exist anymore. If that existed, and they, they, I think in the 15th century they tried to do it, and uh, Napoleon tried to do it, and then, either way, simply speaking, and also from the point of view of the, I believe it's the Rambam, for Mashiach to come, we kind of need that, which is why there was a big motivation to try and get it going. But that body, the word Sanhedrin just means in, in Greek for people to sit together. That idea, there was, a, there was a Sanhedrin in small Sanhedrins in different cities, and there was the big one in the, in the base of Migdash, but that idea of a Sanhedrin would be able to be creative like the Rav's describing that in the future would hopefully come about somehow because then we could fix, simply speaking, issues within Judaism that we would like to fix. I, I would add one more point, though. We today have new questions that clearly were not discussed 1,400 years ago or even 400 years ago or even 100 years ago. So these are new questions. They were never discussed. We don't have first-hand sources to tell us how to deal with many different kinds of things, whether it's electricity, whether it's electricity for Shabbos, or, or, or um, in vitriol fertilization. These are new questions. But the, but the way we answer the questions has to be built on the interpretation of the sources with the, with the systems of how to interpret those sources that are eternal. 
So we, we're, we're not, we're, because God threw out new situations to us, so I can't say that we're creating new law or that we're revealing law. See, that's, it's, it's, they're new situations. But we're solving the new problems with the old, with the old principles. The old principles, because those are eternal. The principles of the Torah are eternal. The situations are always changing. So the, the, yeah, go. No, I just you're going to probably you're going to help you're going to help define moral truth. <laughs> no, so the, <laughs> please define moral truth. You said you you, you want to say you asked are they creating moral truth? I need a definition of moral truth before I can even begin to answer that question. Give me an example. you got to give me an example. It's wrong to murder. That's a moral, that they didn't create that. That's revealed in the Torah. Correct. Morality is revealed in the Torah. Okay. So then are they, are they revealing rather than creating? What's their, what's, their, what's their role with regards to moral truths or moral statements? More, there, I, I understand that they're revealing the will of God. As, but again, they're not revealing it because it was revealed to Moshe at Sinai. They just brought it. Moshe brought it down and taught it to the Jewish people. So what's the role of so what's the role of the rabbis to to, to transmit it and where it's ambiguous to understand it? Okay. But I mean, all of the all of the again, the Torah is very clear about morality. Murder is immoral. Stealing is immoral. Adultery is immoral. Etc. 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 These are very clear. You want to say is violating Shabbos immoral? No, you can't say violating Shabbos is immoral unless you're going to make a broader definition of morality. Okay, again, we can talk about universal morality versus particularistic morality. For a Jew to violate Shabbos, one could make a claim that there is a dimension of immorality because, because keeping Shabbos is part of the mission statement of the Jewish people. So when somebody commits treason, is that immoral? Well, if you're going to agree that committing treason against your country is immoral, then one could make the argument that violating Shabbos in public is immoral, which is why it has such serious consequences. But again, we get there, we're getting into universal morality versus particularistic morality. That's how so, I would understand but I'll so let, just to my add, learner, because he's, he's given more thought to this question than I have. So, so when you <coughs> use the language of um, uh, a moral truth, that's looking at the Torah as being a, 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 the, the, the reason why we follow the Torah and the reason why we follow God is because we think there's this like ultimate, m- that, that, that it's a moral mission. It's not just I'm arbitrary doing things that a powerful being in the sky. So there's a moral aspect to Judaism that without the language of morality kind of loses its flavor. It loses its, its impetus for us to follow it. Using that model, in which case, how would I apply that to the, the, uh, the Sanhedrin or the Anche Knesset Sakodaila, which is another, the men of the great assembly, where they instituted things like um, um, they canonized the Tanakh. Which ones they left in, which ones they left out, why? Um, the idea of Shemayin Esrei, the, um, the, the Amida prayer. Now, how did that relate to the moral imperative of the Jewish people? If I had to be speculative, I'd say, well, the people who were on that body of great men were prophets. A prophet from a Jewish standpoint isn't a dude who, or like, prophets, it's someone who God has chosen. 
which means they had to be at the highest standards of moral awareness. It wasn't just some dudes, which is why the story of Bilam is such a problem, at least for the Rambam, who's one of the only people who codifies what we mean by a prophet. Bilam was a baddie. How is God talking to him? <laughs> so the answer, I think we discussed this the, the, uh, last week, is that from the Rambam's point of view, at, certain, uh, at a certain point, Bilam was a goodie. Because otherwise, the idea of him having prophecy was impossible. And the men of the Great Assembly, using that as an example, if they're going to innovate something, it's not just stammer dude following a, 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 uh, the way, the way I, I, I heard it put. Um, and I've forgotten his name because I'd love to quote him. Any of you guys into Star Trek? <laughs> an android. If an android, Commander Data, for example, would give you Psak Halacha, that wouldn't be what we would call the continuation of the moral revelation of the Torah, even though he might know everything. Because the human part and the data part have to be together. What I mean by the human part is, Prophet is a good example of this. It wasn't just someone who was wise. It was someone who was good, who had been able to follow the dictates of the Torah, who was able to go in Hashem's way. And he was a prophet. In which case, them as a body of people, when they came out with legislation that didn't exist beforehand, like, just using the example of Tanakh, that these are the ones we need for history, and the rest we don't. That decision wasn't made just purely based off data. It was made based off the desire to continue who they were as, as great people, both in the intellectual sense, but also in the moral sense. So when it comes about, how is that moral truth, as you asked? I'd say, because who it came from. It, it came from people who are continuing that same tradition, which connects both the information, but also the moral framework. So when they come out with it, I'd say it's a continuation of that. Does that help a bit? I'm just going to supplement one thing. And I, I think the question is built on whether we can talk about, about new moral sensitivities developing today or over time that our rabbis didn't have. Okay, I think that may be one of the questions. And I'm going to categorically reject that. In other words, morality is built into the, to- to the revealed Torah. God reveals to us what's called moral and what's called immoral. And I don't think you can find anything... Again, we can, we can claim that society today calls something that the Torah calls immoral, society today calls it moral... And something that the Torah calls moral, society today can call it immoral. But if we believe in the divinity and the eternity of the Torah, so then we have to look to the Torah to define morality. Right, so th- there are two answers to that question. One is you have to ask that to God, because that's what God did. Okay, that's one answer. Um, but, the d- but the deeper answer is that that's what keeps it alive. In other words, the minute you have a corpus that is completely written down, it's finished, it's dead. It doesn't have the tools to confront the future of Jewish history as it's going to unfold. So therefore, there have to be principles... Okay, and just hold on for one second, okay? And um, when the Torah wants to tell you that when you knock out somebody's eye, you have to pay, and it formulates it in his ayin, tachar ayin, and it doesn't mean that, it means something else. So there's lots of subtext messages being communicated. This is what Talmudic scholars do. 
That's what the, the Gemara does, and that's what the Rishonim do, and that's what part of Jewish scholarship does is, okay, we know what God told us, now we've got to figure out why did he say it in that way. Okay, and everything that Bible critics say proves that there are multiple authors to the Torah. We say that there were multiple messages that God gave us because he wrote it one way, one way this time and a different way another time. So to the Bible critics, that indicates that the Torah is man-made. And to us, it indicates that God is sending us lots of messages and it's our job to figure them out. Does that help? Can I, can, I add, can I add something to the thing about morality? I'm not as settled as the Rav is on the point of morality. Meaning, how we interact with morality, I think it's very difficult to us to extract ourselves from our social environment. Meaning, when I come across the Torah, and I see something in the Torah that seems really immoral, I don't know, selling your daughter. You shouldn't sell your daughter. That's bad. Like, you shouldn't go about selling your daughter. Or, descriptions about what you should do with your slave. I think having slaves is immoral. I think you should never put someone under... Uh, in which case, what do I do about that? The answer is, and I, I recognize the difficulty in what I'm saying, but I'll, I'll articulate it out. I was attracted to the writings of Rav Hirsch specifically because of that formulation of how he understands the relationship between the written and the oral law. So when these questions arise, I don't take them as face value. I take them in the context of an oral tradition, which is what I brought you back to. Now, my decision to look at it like that, is that a product of my environment or is that a product of my pure understanding of Torah. I can't, I can't rip both of those apart. I'm part of my... Now, was I attracted to Rav Hirsch? If I had been born 500 years ago, would I have found Rav Hirsch as being like terrible apologetics and giving in to uh, social norms? I don't know. I'm not brought up in a society where having a slave was the most normal thing in the world. So I, I, I reckon... I, 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 how exactly I navigate that, I'm not 100% sure because I can't extract myself from history. I'm part of history. I'm part of my environment. But I think... Um, so when, for example, let's take a, an example like, uh, as I said, uh, selling a daughter as a slave, right? Uh, a servant. Right? Rav Hirsch points out, like, this is the answer that, that made sense of it. A person can say, well, yeah, that's Torah morality. Sell your daughter. I'd be like, uh, well, no. Now, where's that no coming from? I, I, that's a, a harder discussion to have. What does Rav Hirsch say? Why does the Torah come up with one of the most unique situations? To show you that even the lowest of society not making any judgment call on very poor people, but throughout history, the lowest rung of society was this part of society that you didn't care about. And the lowest, lowest, lowest rung was someone who had, was in such dire straits that they had to sell their own daughter. The Torah describes that even then, they deserve dignity. They deserve your respect. That's Rav Hirsch's reading on why the Torah gives that as its second book of Jewish civic law. For me, that's morally inspiring. Now, we could take the Rav's answer to the, the thing is, which is like, yeah, that's Torah morality. Of course you find it inspiring. Oh, no, 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 you misunderstood me. Because if you study the Gomorrah, <laughs> the Gomorrah doesn't advocate for selling your daughter. Okay? The Gomorrah is talking about how we deal with a person who does, and that's morality. But it doesn't tell you do it. It says, if you do it, these are the requirements. So that's morality. It's telling you how to behave morally. Now I'm going to interface with what you're saying. How do you behave morally even in difficult situations? What do we learn about how you have to treat a slave from that we export? How do you treat an employee? And that's what the Gemara does. The Gemara says, these teach me laws about how to deal with my employees on a day-to-day basis. Do you think that we need that today? Definitely we need that today. And the Torah has a lot to say about it. 
okay, as a, as opposed to some you know a, a, a businessman or politician, you know, or 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 um, a, a, a legislator deciding how we're supposed to deal with our with our employees. So that that's that so, so I, I, just to add to that 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 we also do believe in a certain thing called conscience. That now the question is, conscience can be fickle. I, the idea that we have the ability to perceive moral truths as part of the world, I think, is has its basis within Judaism, which means that when the, if the, if there something comes about within the Torah that I will struggle with, then I'll struggle with it. Meaning, it's not the fact that um, that, uh, it, it, that without the Torah existing, I wouldn't know what's right and wrong. Meaning, if the Torah did, if there was no five books of Moses, I'd be like, well, maybe killing people's children. No, I'm not, nobody, nobody's going to say that. It's like one of the biggest hitbacks of an atheist. That it's like, do you need the Torah to know what's good and what's bad? So if the Torah wasn't there, you'd be like, I'm going to go stab people. No, obviously not. We, we, we know the right and we know the wrong. I would give religious argument for that. I'd say that's because we're, 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 we're creations of God. We're in the image of God. And I think that part of that is what we mean by Hashem is a certain moral will and what comes through us. That we can feel the right and we can feel the wrong. Now, certain times there'll be points of conflict. There aren't many, but there are points of conflict. Now, the best one that I always give, the worst one, the best way ever, what's the point of conflict that I feel the most, one of the points of conflict I feel, feel the most powerfully? It's one where you are asked to cause harm to someone else. And there's only one time in Jewish law today when you're asked to do that. A bris milah. Now everybody does, hey, bris milah, yay! It's a serious issue. It's like a serious thing. You're cutting someone. Do I think it's important? Do I think it's essential? Yes, 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 yes. But recognize the gravity of what you're doing. So I can see there's a certain tension there. There are other examples. But I don't think the need to... So there'll be times where I'll, I'll give fealty to the fact that, okay, I don't understand how this lives out to the moral will. I don't. I don't know how this, this specific... Not Brismila, I think I can give a fairly decent argument for that. But there are things that I can't see necessarily how they live out. Okay, there are certain things I can't explain through my moral conscience following with the Torah. And those... I would quote unquote call my Akeda moments. Well, yeah, <coughs> that's the Akeda of Avram. In a certain respect, God told him to do that which was very difficult. Now, I'm not asked to kill my son. God forbid. And it, what would I do if I was? I know what I would do? Of course not. Someone told me, the Torah told me, there's no way I'm killing my son. You, are you cr-? Now, how do I understand the story of the Akeda? That's why it's one of the hardest stories in the Torah. How did it make sense that Avram could do this? So we have our own little mini-Arcada moments, perhaps. But, the, I mean, we could discuss the whole Arcada situation, how it made sense and whatever. But I'm saying there are going to be points of tension. But in general, from my understanding, there, there is a, there's a, uh, a parallel and in synchronicity between my moral conscience and the Torah. That doesn't mean my moral conscience determines what's right in the Torah. I think there happens to be, but I would expect there to be. If what I understand as being Hashem, as being the the highest good. Yeah, Moyer. Yeah, I had a question for something you said about policy. You kind of, and you also kind of alluded to your comments on rupture and reconstruction, which is um, in response to what Ari said about um, about why didn't they just have the written Torah to make it really long? And you said, oh, well, you need to have the oral to make it living. With the codification of the Talmud and the Shulchan Aruch, and the Shemurah, and all the halakha works that come to them, do you think we no longer live with a living tradition? Definitely not. If you you, you studied Gemara for a little while, right? Is it is it ambiguous or unambiguous? What do you mean? The Gemara. The Gemara. 
ambiguous. Ambiguous. It's a, it, they had to write it down, but they wrote it down in a way that is not understandable without oral tradition. In other words, we, the oral tradition is always Judaism is a living religion. It's a living corpus of knowledge. It's a constantly evolving system because of rabbinic authority, because of the oral nature of the Torah. person for that express purpose of maintaining the, the it's, necessity. It's, it's even sharper than that. It's sharper than that. Okay, there are sources about this where in the Talmud it says that a Mishnah is missing words. Chesure mechsura. Right, the Mishnah, the Gemara says that this Mishnah doesn't make any sense. And right, and they, So I don't remember, I think, I think it might have even been the Vilna Gon, but certainly there, one, some of the later Achronim say, when Rebbe wrote down the Mishnah, the Gemara says he violated a Torah principle because it says that written, the written Torah is not allowed to be transmitted orally and the oral Torah is not allowed to be transmitted in a written form. That's what it says in the Gemara based on, on verses in the Torah, that you have to keep oral tradition oral. And the Gemara says when Rebbe wrote down the Mishnah, he violated that. They justified it with a pasuk, eight lasot lashem heferu Torah techa, Sometimes in order to save the Torah, you have to violate it. Okay? But in order to maintain the oral nature of the Torah, he wrote it in an ambiguous way so that it's incomprehensible without an oral tradition. So it was done intentional. It's not bad editing. When the Gemara says, sorry, Mechzerah, Vachiktani, oh, the, the author of the Mishnah left out words. It wasn't bad editing. Okay? It was intentional. That's, that's how the, the Echronim explained it. Lewis, you haven't asked anything yet. I'm sure that, okay, I give, let other people ask your questions for you. Now let's hear your question. So when is someone empowered to choose between sop for themselves? And I just want to, so it's not straw man, right? So let's assume no, let's assume no like, um, like self-serving agenda. And um, let's say you're choosing between sop by major figures. When, can, when do they use their own spara or when can they... When can they say like, this? This better represents my values. Or they study the sugya and they like they really know the sugya. Let's assume they're not like if they actually are very literate and they study. They think my reasoning and my study of the sugya aligns with this sop and this rabbi. I know we often choose a posse and follow them, but when can we say like deviate? And it also another just to make sure it's not strong and also say assuming that it's not like going to contradict their other halakhic like oh this breaks for being Tom, but I keep being Tom here. Assuming there's not that kind of yeah, no, so the, again, I'm going to give you a, a one-phrase answer and then I'll try to elaborate on it. The real answer is Asel Haraf. In other words, you have to have a, a, an authority by which when there are issues that are, that there, where there are two sides to a question, then you have to have a, a Rav, Asel Haraf, somebody who's at a higher level of knowledge than you to be able to, ju- to adjudicate. Um, now, a Rav himself is able to, that, that there's a concept called Talmud Shehigia Lehora'a, that, that you studied enough so that you are qualified. But your qualification has to be that, yes, I, uh, you know, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I heard Reb Shlomo Zalman's psaq and I heard Reb Moshe Feinstein's psaq. And Reb Shlomo Zalman's resonates better with me. So that's a very tricky thing. 
what you what what one would normally do is and we I'll give you an example. We had a very difficult situation in the yeshiva. Rav Shlomo Zalman was one of, was basically our authority, and we went to discuss the problem with Rav Shlomo Zalman. It was a very very difficult, very controversial, very difficult situation. And basically, what he said is, "Look, I can't give you the psak you need. Go to somebody who holds a Ramosha." There was a machlokas between Ramosha Feinstein and Rav Shlomo Zalman on a certain issue. Okay. And he said, look, you need to go to somebody who holds a Ramosha's leniency. Because I don't. But he didn't say you can't do it. He told me go to that person because he understood that the consequences of him of his psak, according to his opinion, would not be appropriate for our student. So, but, but I didn't decide that myself. I went to Rav Shlomo Zalman. I didn't say, well, uh, I know Rav Shlomo Zalman's psak, and I know Rav Moshe Feinstein's psak, and I'm going to decide that in this case... I'm going to follow Rav Moshe Feinstein. I needed Rav Shlomo Zalman to tell me that that's appropriate. So you're always beholden to the Rav that you choose? I think so, you, yes. You should be. So, I, yeah, I guess I missed the question. I'm wondering if you hold the same way. When can the individual study a soga very well and then choose between socks, um, even when they might, their Rav <coughs> might hold some position, and then they say, like, they study it, and like, my reasoning leads me on this issue, like, Rav Solveitchik beats Rav Moshe Feinstein, even though I usually follow no, you see, wait, no, you, 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 you usually follow Moshe, or you, you have a Rav, and the Rav, Rav, Rav's sock is like Rav Moshe Feinstein, or like Rav Soloveitchik, right? So there's, there's a Selach Rav. You have to be at a level where either you are qualified to be the Rav, or you have to go to your Rav, okay? Uh, I'll use another example we've had, okay? You know you're not allowed to go sock shopping. Sock shop. What does he mean? Sock. Oh, well. In this case, I know that the rabbi in this this situation, I know this rabbi is lenient, so I'll go to him for when I have this question. But in the other thing, I know he's lenient. And, okay, that's called sock shopping. A person is not allowed to do it. I'm going to say something sharp. I'm allowed to do it. What do I mean? I'm allowed to do it. When you come to me with a question, so I am now allowed to decide whether I want to go for your situation. That's already my decision as a rav to say. You know what? It, 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 we need in your situation to follow the lenient psak, or no, you know what, in your situation we need to come down on the strict side. But that's because if, assuming I would be your Rob, that's what I would be doing. I can go psak shopping for a question that I have about you, but I for myself, but a, but a person for himself, he has to say, I say lecha rav. He has to have a Rob. Okay, so I'm here judging your, I'm, I'm not making my question, I'm judging your question, and therefore it's my, my responsibility and my ability in my, when I'm hearing your question to decide which, how it should be treated. Should it be treated more leniently or more strictly? That's what Ramosha, when Rishlomo Zalman sent me to, a, to another Rav for this question, he understood that, that, that the proper way would be to, hand, to, to follow leniency, but he himself didn't hold of that, so he couldn't tell me it's okay, you can, you can, go, you can go lenient. He, he directed us to somebody else. Okay, there's another question. I'm not going to go into the details, but I remember this was a story I heard secondhand, but it makes perfect sense. It's perfect for Shlomo Zalman. He said, I can't answer your question because I raised 10 children in this two-room apartment. You grew up on the, in the five towns with a mansion. You've got to ask somebody who understands your situation because I, you I can't give you a correct psak in that situation. That's a guddle. That's a guddle. I hope I answered your question. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Let Rabbi Lerner pick it up. So, so just a, it's a tricky one to answer because you're balancing lots of different factors. You're balancing, not you, you're balancing the person's ego. I want this, I want that. The idea of finding a Rav as well, you're, there's an aspect of ego in there as well. You have to pick it. 
In which case, so simply speaking, it's a broad answer. I think it's not, not adding anything particularly new. But when a person studies a sugya to the extent where they know it cold, right, and they understand they have a rav, they've asked their questions to a rav, and they've come to a situation where they understand the inner workings, and they can, a rav, like a rav can change his mind on a certain sack, certain people can become more stringent over time, and certain people can become less stringent over time. Also, the way you perceive halacha in terms of you're writing a book on halacha, right? You're writing a book on halacha and your opinions might change as time goes on. Now, for a rav's opinions to change, by definition, he has to come to a situation where he's able to choose between two views. When is the, a person at that stage? It's at a stage where the idea, at least the classical notion of smicha comes into play, when they, that they, they've received from their rav that they feel, that person feels that they are at a stage where they're both objective enough, meaning they feel the person's built himself up to a certain moral standard, but also from an, a knowledge standpoint, they have enough body information that they can give psak on certain laws. At which point, if you're going to give psak for other people, to an extent, you would, have, you would be able to follow it yourself. You could choose to be strict to yourself, but you can't be telling people to do things that are wrong. In which case, when you give psak, if I ask my rav in my community, what does he think a certain thing should be? And he says, I think you should do A. I think he thinks that's the right thing to do or at least the permissible thing to do. In which case, if I found out behind closed doors he did the same thing, I wouldn't be surprised. It's a bit of a roundabout way of saying if it. If you studied it, you would never, you would never find a difference. Like you, saying like, I'm of course you could. Agenda, you, would, you would maybe deviate, you know, you follow him. Like, but, in, on, in, let me ask you, if, if, if I have a Rav, okay, and he told me a certain thing, and I studied the Sugya, and I didn't agree the proper response is Yilamdeinu Rabbeinu. I go back to him and I cross-examine him and I discuss it with him because I'm assuming that the Rav I'm going to is much more knowledgeable than me. So it would be a little bit of a kasha on me that I think I'm qualified to decide on my own different than him without some kind of a dialogue with him for him to explain to me why I'm wrong. Or I might be able to convince him that for me it's right. But for me to make that decision on my own, I believe that that means I have an agenda. I, I, I lost my objectivity because I'm not ready to discuss it with him. That's a sign I lost my objectivity. 